So today, yes, we begin a new six-part series on dealing with conflict. Why? Why we, are we uh, addressing this particular issue and now in the life of our church? A couple of very important reasons. First of all, because we live in a world where conflict happens. It occurs in all human relationships. Every family, every marriage, every workplace, every sports team, every leadership board and every church, every staff in every church, every church, where one human being connects with another human being sooner or later as they get to know each other and realize they have different perspectives on a lot of different things, sparks will begin to fly. And so unless you and I are learning how to handle conflict properly, we're gonna to continue to live with relational hurts and not experience the harmony, the unity, that communicates to a broken world the radical difference that Jesus Christ can make. So I'm concerned in this series, certainly, that you and I, as we deal with conflict, are learning new skills so we're properly addressing conflict in our personal lives. But I'm also very concerned, as Amy alluded to, that the church uh, excuse me, the world outside the church, if they're observing conflict within the church, are they going to listen to our message? Certainly not. So Jesus is concerned not only for our own relationships, our families, but he's also concerned about this matter of our witness to a broken world. So that's the first reason for this series, the fact that we live in a world where conflict happens. The second reason is this. According to the Vital Church report that we did back in the fall, remember that? You said, not Vital Church, you said that as a congregation we do not handle conflict particularly well. Look at this chart and you'll see what I mean. Let's begin way over on the right. So in answer to this question, are church members and leaders good at conflict resolution? 13%, that is the staff, responded by, well, that's their score. 13% said, yeah, we're good at that. The board, higher score, 63%. The generation known as the silent generation, that would be those between the ages of uh, 76 and 96, uh, they, they gave the highest score. What's the lowest score among generations? Well, millennials, those between the ages of 25 and 41, 9%. Go all the way over to the left, and you see the overall score, 25%. You say, is that good? <laughs> Vital Church says anything less than 70% is cause for concern. So there you go, 25%. So that being the case, the majority of you then responded to this survey question by reporting, we're not very good at, at implementing conflict resolution skills. So in order to at least begin to address this, the staff, I think it was back in January, uh, began to um, read a book and engage in conversation around some videos recommended by Vital Church entitled Peacemaking. And at some point down the road, the leadership board anticipates going through the same material. The author of that uh, book and series mentions that there are four primary wrong ways that you and I typically respond to conflict. 
and I want you to see what they are. The first is a passive style of response, and this is the definition or description. I hope you can read it, um, but here we go. People who use passive responses tend to believe that all conflict is wrong and must be endured quietly. Passive responders tend to believe mercy and love forbid any confrontation, so they will go to great lengths to deny feelings of anger and to avoid speaking the truth. Passive responders are usually quiet, unassertive, compliant, non-resistant, and submissive. They hold secrets and cover up truth. Passive responders are more interested in keeping themselves and others from hurt than they are in reconciling themselves or others in God's truth. I would say based on more than now than 50 years of pastoral experience, this is the dominant one for most church members that I've been involved with, most staffs. By the way, this tends to be my style and uh, many of on the staff responded in similar ways. So if there is conflict, we're more interested in keeping the peace through avoidance than we are in making true peace. So issues get swept under the rug. We then tend to internalize grudges and all kinds of resentments, which may go back even many years. So I'm wondering, was this the model that you saw modeled growing up by mom or dad? And is it your style of responding to conflict? So that's the first one. Second one related actually to the first is that some of us have an evasive response style. You say, what's the difference? Well, let's look at this description. People who are evasive responders tend to believe all conflict is wrong and must be avoided. So in that sense, they're the same as the first group. Evasive responders, though, are reluctant to admit that there is a conflict, and when unavoidable, they will spread rumors, rationalize, compromise, or blame others for the conflict. They're more interested in diverting themselves, and sometimes others, away from the discomfort and responsibility of the conflict than they are in reconciling themselves or others to God's truth. So people that are evasive in their style tend to seek out relationships that support them. They may be in a relationship, a friendship with somebody for many, many years. They do things socially, backyard barbecues, they go to concerts or whatever together. But if there is a significant conflict with that person who's been a friend for years, what happens? They are willing to sacrifice the relationship rather than address their issues. They will quit the job rather than face their issues. They will file for divorce. They will even leave a church rather than face their contribution to the conflict. So again, I want to ask you, is that what you saw modeled by mom or dad growing up? And is that your particular style? Now, before we go to the next two, let me give you this little bit of a segue. As the uh, author Jim Van Eppren correctly points out, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 15 tells us to speak the truth in love. The problem with these first two responses is that people think that they're responding in love by covering up the issues and uh, consequently they're not really loving and they're avoiding truth. 
The problem with the next two that we're going to look at is that there's such a concern for issues of truth as they interpret truth, but the problem is there's no compassion or love that's shown. So the third possible response is a defensive style. You say, what's that like? Here we go again, definition. People use defensive responses, tend to believe all conflict is about proving who is right and who is wrong. So authority and position must be defended at all cost. Defensive responders can be argumentative, persuasive, manipulative. They make extreme arguments to prove a point. So their primary need is to be right. That being the case, they will bend or manipulate truth in order to win the argument, the conflict. I'm wondering if any of you has a supervisor in the workplace who's like that, very defensive, or maybe it's a coach on a ball team, maybe it's a parent. You know the issue. You, you try to tell mom or dad what is going on in your life and where there might be some uh, disagreement and they won't hear it. They get very defensive. So would your family, if they had the opportunity, say that that's your style? Are you responding to conflict in this defensive kind of way? It's all about being right. The fourth one is related to the third, but again, there's a difference. What is it? Aggressive, aggressive style. Here we go. People who use aggressive responses tend to believe all conflict is about power. So it's an opportunity to see who is the strongest or who is in control. They are forceful, pushy, vigorous, and energetic in conflict. They're confrontational bold, assertive in their feelings, aggressive responders are usually dominant, direct, and demanding. So it's all about control. And once again, I want to ask you, is, is this your preferred style or is it what you saw modeled perhaps in your family life growing up? So those are four always wrong ways of responding to conflict. Most of us tend to find ourselves in one or more of these categories. That is to say, sometimes we may be in more than one, but we have a dominant way of responding to conflict, and it tends to be one of these four. So to help each one of us to figure out our personal style, as you leave today, we're going to make this conflict style assessment tool available to you. It's by the same author as I've been quoting here, and we encourage you to pick one up, and not only to take it, but after you have completed it, which will take you, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes to do, to encourage you to sit down with somebody and to walk through it, to say, here's my style, what did you learn about yourself, and there are even some good practical suggestions here in this particular survey. So, all of that from the peacemaking seminar material. So what do we do? I mean, does the Bible say anything to us of a practical nature to deal with conflict in relationships? Oh yeah, does it ever. Has a lot of examples, illustrations, things to avoid, things positively to do. Principles are brought to our attention and strong motivation to engage in biblical conflict resolution. In fact, our text today, we'll get to it in a few more moments eventually, our text for today finds Jesus giving instruction as to how we're to deal with conflict with somebody else in the life of the church. 
So if there's somebody you're not getting along with at any time here at City Church, what's the response? What are we supposed to do? What does Jesus say with regard to that issue? But before we get there, I want to draw your attention to four preliminary principles with regard to any type of conflict and how we respond. So I encourage you to write these down, completing the sentences there in your notes. First principle is this. It is incumbent upon every believer to seek peace with others. That would seem to be a no-brainer. If you've been around a, Christians, around a church for any length of time, reading the Bible at all, wouldn't you think that this is something that would come easily to us? But that's not the case. In the heat of the moment, we go back and revert to one of these four types of, of other responses. So look what Paul says in Romans 12. If it is possible, not always possible because it takes two to reconcile, but if it is possible, as far as at least it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Related verse is this one from Hebrews, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. So this whole matter of running or avoiding conflict, or for that matter, being defensive or aggressive, we must see is not a righteous option for a child of God. You and I have got to let that sink in. If there's conflict with anybody, you and I are commanded to attempt to resolve the conflict in God-honoring ways. If we do not, what typically happens? We internalize all of that anger. And instead of addressing the problem, because we've internalized that anger, it's gonna come out sideways in other kinds of relationships and it's gonna hurt people whom we love. So, Jesus, to underscore this principle, it's incumbent upon every believer to seek peace with others, gives us the following word of instruction in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Here's a paraphrase from the message. If you enter your place of worship, city church, and about to make an offering. Now, this is not just a financial offering. It's any kind of worship. You're about to sing a song, whatever. You suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. So here you are seated over here, and you, oh, so-and-so is over here, and I know that person isn't getting along with me right now. What does Jesus say to do? Abandon your offering, your worship, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right, then and only then come back and work things out with God. Why is Jesus so concerned that we live in harmony? Well, among other things, he understands that if things aren't right between you and your spouse, you and one of your kids, you and a staff member, whatever, a parent, First of all, it's going to impede your ability to worship God. Now imagine, this didn't happen. I want to assure you it didn't happen, what I'm about to say. But imagine that Valerie and I had a heated exchange before we came to the service this morning. And now I'm getting up to preach. Do you th really think if there is anger in my heart and we're not getting along, there's this relational issue going on between us, do you really think that God is going to bless the preaching of his word? Of course he's not. If you're not getting along with somebody else in the life of this church, it's the same for you. Imagine a situation where, let's say, the staff isn't getting along with one another. 
or they're not getting along with a senior pastor, and that stretches over years of conflict, and it's not being adequately addressed. A visitor walks in and kind of goes, well, they're going through the motions of worship. They're singing songs, they're playing instruments, and somebody is praying and preaching, but something just isn't right here. And it impacts not only our worship, are you going to be interested in serving other people in the life of the church if you've got a conflict? No, you're all about being hurt. You were injured. This person said or did something to you that was offensive. That's all you can deal with. You're not going to be interested in serving. It impacts worship. It impacts service. It certainly affects our fellowship. And it's also going to impact your spiritual growth. You're not going to be interested in receiving the truth of God. And it's also going to impact our corporate and personal witness. Each of the five purposes that Christ gives to the church is negatively influenced if we're not getting along. And so that's why Jesus is emphasizing this point. It is incumbent upon every child of God to seek peace with others. Many of us, because we tend to be passive in our styles, for example, find conflict very hard to do. Granted, it's hard for me to do. It takes a lot of courage. It's got to be done very carefully, but it must be done. So that's the first of the four. Second observation, some minor conflict can be resolved by merely overlooking it. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Well, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, you're going to find this hard to believe, but I have certain personality quirks that certain people might not appreciate. <laughs> and uh, by the way, so do you. So there are things that we say and do, little quirks here and there, personality issues and such, little sins, you know, but they're no big deal. It's not as though we have to confront everything. And so we realized, yeah, okay, love covers a multitude of sins. All right, how do you know then whether or not something has got to be overlooked or can be overlooked? Well, if you're seated here in the service today and you see somebody over here and you know that things aren't right, or you go out into the lobby, you start having a conversation with a couple of friends, somehow that person's name comes up into the conversation and you find yourself emotionally living, reliving all of that hurt and pain and anger, irritation, frustration, it's all there. Clearly you're not overlooking it and you can't. So that's when it certainly needs to be addressed. And so you need to initiate the conversation and we're going to be discussing in this series exactly how to go about doing that. All right, third principle. Jesus tells us in another passage, we'll look at it in a second or two here, what to do before a conflict begins. He tells us to get the log out of your own eye. Look at this text in Matthew 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye 
when all of the time there's a plank in your own eye. Now, I'm sure at this point, people hearing Jesus must have started to laugh. I mean, this is good Jesus kind of humor here, you know? You've got a friend who has a speck of sawdust, you want to help the friend to get it out, and you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. Okay, ha, 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 okay. So Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, the natural and sinful way of uh, responding to things tends to be that we maximize our own hurt while we minimize our own contribution. So Jesus is saying two things in this final verse, the fifth. First of all, deal thoroughly with your own stuff. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Maybe you've got an attitude that needs to be addressed. The word that Jesus uses here is you're judgmental. You're critical. You have come to a premature negative conclusion about somebody before you know all the facts. And so Jesus says you need an attitude readjustment. And then once you've dealt with those kinds of things, your spirit, your attitude, then he says, secondly, deal tenderly with your brother or sister. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly remove the speck from the other person's eye. Notice what Jesus does not say to do. He doesn't say, oh, your brother has a speck of sin in his or her life. Mind your own business. Just disregard the whole thing. Or better yet, go tell the pastor, right? Go tell the pastor or a member of the leadership board about all that you've observed. No, that's not what Jesus says to do. The person has a foreign object. It doesn't belong there. It's a sin in that person's life. It needs to be addressed. And so love demands that you do something about it. If you really love not just yourself and you're self-absorbed, but you really care about this person and his or her relationship even to God, it's something that needs attention. So then you can deal tenderly with your brother or sister. All right, one more principle. Remember the goal of confronting another believer. The goal is not, by the way, to impress upon the person who has offended you with how much you are hurt, the damage they've done, nor is it to make that person feel a lot of pain, nor, for that matter, to stir up others in the church by your gossip. What is the purpose of all of this confrontation business? Well, really, there are several purposes. One is you, in love, want to address something that's wrong in the life of a fellow Christian. So you're concerned about that. You're also, secondly, concerned about the restoration of your relationship, and you care about the restoration of peace and unity for the well-being of the church. So those are four preliminary principles I hope you will remember. Seek peace with others, overlook minor issues, get the log out of your own eye, and remember the goal. All right, with all of that in mind, finally we come to our text of the morning. That's a long introduction. And I'm going to invite you to stand for the public reading of God's word as recorded in our text, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Let's hear the word of God. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, 
you have won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. So here Jesus gives us a step-by-step guide as to how to walk through this process of conflict from beginning to end. Just a couple of quick things to remember about this passage. Jesus' guideline is for dealing with other believers in the context of the church, okay? So these guidelines are for Christians, not unbelievers, and for sins committed against you, nobody else, and for conflict resolution in the context of the church, not the community at large. So for example, this is not telling our government on any level how to deal with conflict. It's not telling corporations how to deal with conflict. That's the context. Christians sinned against you, context of local church life, all right? So once you have determined that a meeting is necessary and that your heart is right before God, you've removed the plank from your own eye, then you, we begin to follow the steps that are summarized there in your notes. The first of which is this, confront one-on-one. -on -one. This is what Jesus says, verse 15. If another believer sins against you, what do you do? Run to the pastor? No. Church board member? No. Go privately, point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. Now every word here is crucial. Someone has sinned against you. So we're not talking about a personality quirk, some annoying mannerism, that's not the deal here, all right? Someone has sinned and the sin is against you. Not your best friend, not your spouse, you. Jesus says to do what? Go. What do most of us do? Sit and sulk. Or we, t we go to a friend who we think will be supportive of us, we tell that friend the person's name who hurt us, and we seek to uh, find out from this friend, this is what the person did to hurt me, this is the person, this is what he said, this is what she did, what do you think I should do? Wrong. Jesus doesn't say to go to a half a dozen friends and, and, and share all of this, he says to go, right? And he says, to go in order to privately, and he says to point out the offense. Well, that's clear, isn't it? So if there is a sin, we need to take a loving approach and we need to deal with it. So maybe we have it wrong. And so we're gonna ask some clarifying questions. Now, this is what I thought you said. This is what I observed. Can you explain yourself? Maybe I, I'm not reading this properly. Can you help me here? 
But if yes, this is what happened, then it needs to be addressed. And Jesus says, why do you do it privately? Well, because that's gonna encourage, hopefully, reconciliation. The person will deal with his or her wrong behavior, confess it, and everything is just great. So we do it, he says, to win the person back. That's what love suggests that we do. Now, we typically think, well, think, well wait a minute here. He offended me. He should come to me. Well, the passage we looked at earlier in Matthew 5 does say that the offender should go to the offended. This is just reversing things. So it's telling us in scripture, it doesn't matter if you're the offended or the offender, you have a responsibility to deal with this issue. Let me give you though a very important word of caution. And it's this. There are certain situations where it would not be wise or not be safe for you to go to someone and confront one-on-one. I'm thinking of situations where your antenna are up and you're thinking, wow, if I go, this could lead to a, a disastrous situation. It could be an abusive deal for me. So if you have questions about that, you can certainly go to a friend without bringing up the person's name or describing in detail what this individual said or did. Just ask for some general input from somebody who's spiritually mature. That you can certainly do. But anyway, that's step number one from Jesus. Ideally, we point out the wrong and the person says, you know what, oh man, I was I, I, bad news. I'm so sorry, I know I hurt you, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And everything is great. You forgive and there's restoration. But what happens if it doesn't work out that way? What happens if the person gets very defensive, for example? Well, Jesus is sort of anticipating that, and so step number two is, you bring in another or others with you, verse 16. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Now this principle, Bringing in other people is probably taken from the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. But we need to remember this. That text is primarily dealing with kind of legal court cases. You're bringing in witnesses in a court of law kind of a context in order to determine guilt. That's the purpose of that. We're not talking about that kind of a context. We're talking about church life. So then what is the role of the witness? It could be, could be that the witness overheard what was said or observed what was done and can then collaborate your story. That could be, but I don't think so. I think the role of the witness is to uh, listen to both sides here and to make sure that they're handling things properly. In other words, the role of the witness is to make sure no one's yelling, nobody's getting all worked up, getting defensive, so the witness is there to make sure that the principal parties make every attempt to reconcile. Who should you ask to be a witness? Somebody who's spiritually mature. Ideally, though, not the past, one of the pastors or not even a board member. Why not? We're gonna find out as we go into some further steps that they need to be involved later on in the picture. And you know, it tends to maybe escalate the level of concern in the part of the, 
the person who's, who is the offender if it's the pastor who shows up or a board member. If it has to be a pastor or has to be a board member, maybe that person should say, I'm taking off my leadership hat right now and I'm just here as a brother or sister in Christ hoping to encourage reconciliation. What if step one doesn't work, step two, you brought in a witness or two, doesn't work, now what do you do? Step three, tell it to the church, verse 17. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Now the church here is understood to be the spiritual leadership of the congregation. Those who are called to give spiritual shepherding to the flock. Now elsewhere, the Bible calls them elders. Here at City Church, we call them leadership board members. So it's their task now, out of a concern for unity in the congregation, to consider the charges against this errant brother or sister and once again seek to apply scripture wisely, lovingly, cautiously in an effort to bring that person to repentance. Now, if the person repents, everybody can sing the hallelujah chorus and uh, shake hands and go home, right? However, if the person has, let's say, damaged property, or taken money, or has hurt other people in the process, then the leadership must make sure that the person's repentance is genuine by addressing those other kinds of issues in that individual's life. And that can happen. Heard many stories over the years of that happening. But if not, let's say that bombs out too. Three steps, none of them work. Step four, treat the person like an unbeliever. Verse 17. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. So if in the end it doesn't work, doesn't bring about repentance, it's the duty of the leadership of the church to declare their lack of, of repentance, which is an evidence of a, you know, a sign of unbelief, requires them to formally declare this person is no longer a member of the church. The process is called excommunication. It's removing privileges like the Lord's Supper. You say, well, wait a minute. Can the person still attend worship services? Well, let me ask you, do, can pagans and tax collectors continue to come to worship service? Of course, we hope that they will. And so we hope that this person will and they'll be encouraged to move toward repentance. Okay, but as a church, do we shun this person? I mean, there are some religious bodies that practice shunning. Do we do that? Well, did Jesus shun tax collectors and pagans? Well, of course not. And so we shouldn't do that either. So meanwhile, let's remember that this process, though it may seem very hard to you, it's the loving thing to do. If we really love this person who has committed this wrong and there's a refusal to repent, the loving thing is confrontation. If we love the unity and the peace of the church, it's something that has got to be addressed. And so to encourage us, to motivate us, Jesus gives us two thoughts here. The first is assuring the church of his presence. Look at verse 18. I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So he's 
encouraging this kind of response on the part of the leadership in the church by promising his presence in affirming the decision. In addition to that, he closes this section with a wonderful prayer promise. Look at, well, I guess you can't. It's not on the screen. Sorry, I forgot this verse. So let me just quote it. Where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Now, there is a promise that's oftentimes taken out of context. The context here is what? Church discipline. So that's the promise for efforts by the church to promote healing and peace. So there you have it. Those are the steps. And I'm wondering this morning, what does this say to you? Well, let me summarize some action steps for you to be giving consideration to. Here they are coming up on the screen. First of all, it's saying this to you. Don't ignore conflict. Address it. Number two, don't exaggerate conflict. Solve it with the least possible publicity. Number three, don't abandon conflict. Pursue it to resolution. Number four, don't fence yourself in by conflict. Take one or two witnesses. Five, don't recycle conflict. Once resolved, let it go and get back to your life. Finally, don't fear conflict. Remember that Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, and the great reconciler is with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your promise to forgive us whenever we fail others when we humble ourselves and acknowledge the truth of what we've done, thank you. When we, when we are in the wrong, Lord, give us the grace we need to listen to the counsel of others and then seek their forgiveness in yours. And when we're the ones who have been hurt, give us the courage we need to speak the truth always in love that we might reflect to the world your healing and restoration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.